Hey, Love Tribe, get excited for another great episode with Chase and our special guest. But before we start, I wanted to remind you about our amazing and free 14-day happy couple challenge. I don't know about you, but with the upcoming holidays, I'm feeling this hectic energy and I'm craving some grounding, fun, and meaningful connection with my partner. So whether you've been with your partner for many years and you're needing to mix things up or you're a newly coupled and you're looking to dive in to learn more about each other, the 14-Day Happy Couple Challenge is perfect for anyone wanting to deepen their relationship and have fun while doing it. So head on over to our website to sign up. You can start connecting deeper physically and emotionally today over at idopodcast.com slash 14 with our simple, easy, and doable daily challenges arriving straight into your inbox daily. This free 14-Day Challenge will help you break the old habits and build new engaging habits that will push you to create a deeper intimacy with your partner. Sign up today for free for the 14-Day Happy Couple Challenge to start strengthening and improving your relationship today. Head on over to idopodcast.com slash 14. That's idopodcast.com slash 14 to sign up for our free challenge today. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hi guys, hope you're having a wonderful day wherever you are tuning in from. Today I have a great conversation with Dr. Rob Weiss. He is a Chief Clinical Officer at Seeking Integrity LLC, an organization that provides online education and residential treatment for porn and substance or sex addicted men in their families. And today, Dr. Rob and I talk about what he calls pro-dependency. And we talk about codependency and how it arose as a, let's say, diagnosis and why a lot of it is a bit troublesome or misleading or mislabeling, especially when it comes to codependency and addiction. And he has a really different view on it and how to reframe our relationships with someone who may be an addict. And this is valuable whether or not you're you're with someone who is addicted. Maybe you have a family member or someone in your life that is supporting someone who is an addict. And even as it comes to general codependency in love, I found this conversation very interesting and valuable in reframing the way we think about codependency. So you guys are going to enjoy today's show. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and we really appreciate you. Have a wonderful day, evening or night and enjoy the show.
Hi, Dr. Rob. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Chase, you know, it's always good to get out there and inform and help people grow. I'm really excited to talk to you because we've never talked about this on the show and probably because we've never had you on the show. It seems like you're one of the bigger thought leaders in this area of what you call pro-dependence. So I thought we could start by having you talk about what codependence is, and then we'll talk about how you define pro-dependence and, and dive into that. Well, codependence is a pop culture idea that came out of four books that were written in the 1980s. Some of them are quite famous. You'd know them like Codependent No More or Women Who Love Too Much, you know, those kinds of things. And it really mirrored codependence in its evolution. Well, I did my uh, dissertation on codependence, so I know a lot about it. And really, it evolved in sync with the women's movement of the 1980s that talked about women being more empowered by, by not being dependent by moving away from men and, you know, in the workplace, uh, nine to five is the movie that comes to mind, you know, get rid of that stupid boss and get ahead. And that's what women have to do to break the glass ceiling is grow less dependent on the, on the patriarchy, if you will. But as part of the process, there were, and also some other things that were going on at that time, like, um, like self, uh, self growth, personal growth, and, uh, this whole movement, Est and Lifespring and all these things that were about self-development, there was this whole movement toward, moving away from being dependent on other people. And the concept was the more independent you were, you know, very Western, pull up yourself by the bootstraps, you know, and for women in particular, because women read 95% of self-help books, it was a message to, um, to empower yourself and not allow yourself to have to lean into men or anyone in order to achieve. And for the 1980s, that was a really good message for women. And it bled into the psych psychological and psychiatric field, most particularly in addictions, because we didn't have an answer for what was really going on with the family members and the loved ones of addicts. There was just not a way to describe them. There had not been since Al-Anon in the 1940s a view of them. And so what came out of that was looking at uh, the entire system of a family uh, as being troubled. So codependency said, if you're involved with an addict or alcoholic, there's also something wrong with you. And you have to look back at your past and your history and your trauma to see what it is that made you be with this person, stay with this person, and how can you involve yourself in personal growth and development and detach from that loved one in order to develop on your own and grow on your own. And it kind of said, you know, hey, you know, you may grow past that person and decide not to be with them anymore. Or you may decide that you never should have been with them in the first place because you chose them out of your own problems. And therefore, as you grow out of your problems, you won't need to be with this troubled person anymore. Um, so codependence ultimately was a, uh, a pathology or an illness that was applied to loved ones of addicts that said basically they were contributing to the addiction with their own problem behaviors. There you go. Quick summary. <laughs> yes. No, that's a great foundation for us to launch into pro-dependence. And I want to dig into codependency and how it can show up. But I think it'd be valuable if you shared what you've written a book about and reframing this whole idea. You. Yeah. Well, first, I think, Chase, if you don't mind, it'd be important to talk about what's wrong with codependency and not why it doesn't work and why it is a problem, because you don't have to come up with new solutions to things that are resolved. If codependency was the right method, then, um, so for example, it would have been validated. In other words, there would have been a lot of research to support it. It would have ended up as being a diagnosis. 
So you could say someone had a codependency disorder, you know, and most of all, when someone has some kind of illness, we have criteria that says, you know, if they're depressed, that means they have five out of seven of these. You know, if they're anxious, they have five or seven, if they're schizophrenic, et cetera. So the whole like acknowledging a problem, a new problem, like codependency requires a lot of research and acceptance in the mental health community. And that never happened for codependency. There is no research, period, the end, to validate codependency. In fact, no research has been done on codependency since 1994. Um, There is no diagnosis nor has there ever been a diagnosis in the U.S. or internationally for codependency. We already had some diagnoses about overdependence, which had to do with someone's inability to function. They couldn't get through their day unless they were absolutely dependent on another person. And so, you know, we already had a diagnosis for co- for overdependence, and it was never seen to be a need. It was never seen to be a need to create one sort of. Uh, Overdependency light in the psychiatric community. So what actually happened was this huge pop culture. I mean, um, Codependent No More sold 11 million copies in 26 countries. I mean, it was a huge cultural movement. And what came out of that was, you know, hey, if I picked you up across town and it was going out of my way, I was codependent. You know, anytime I put too much energy into another person, I was a co. And I remember the early 90s. It was like, oh my God, I'm a co, you're a co. Well, so the definition broadened into anyone who allowed themselves to become overly dependent on another person. Or, and, and that got put into the addiction field by saying that partners and loved ones of addicts are overly dependent on the addict and they need to separate and push the addict away in order to grow. And um, unfortunately, Chase, that particular way of looking at the world is not how we look at mental health and addiction today. You know, I know just from being a recovering addict that the best way for me to heal is to be in contact with others, that when I move toward relationships, when I go into the 12-step rooms, when I start group therapies, when I engage in relationships, that I begin to heal better. Addicts live in isolation. So if you move them toward relationship, you know that we already know that they're going to get better. And the most important relationships in an addict's life are, of course, their loved ones. They are the most powerful driver. In fact, we research tells us that people who have deeply supportive loved ones that they're close to will recover faster and more consistently in addiction than those who are on their own. So this whole idea that you need to separate and individuate and detach from a loved one in order to help them get through the addiction and for you to grow doesn't apply in the world we live in today. In mental health, we have this concept called attachment, and that looks at the depth of the meaning of our connections. So if in the 1980s and 90s, the the best self I could be was detached, individuated, and on my own, you know, pushing people aside and and being a success in the world, um, that's not how we look at the world today in terms of one person succeeding on their own or as best they can. In fact, um, we look at the world completely opposite now, which is I am as an, I am as um, I am as uh, healthy and as deeply motivated by my connections as I am on my own personal achievements. So, in fact, I would say to you that I have achieved more in my own life since I've been married the last 20 years. I've written more books. I've been more popular. I've done better work than I ever did when I lived alone. And so now we look at our families and our loved ones as being the foundation of everything that comes after that. And if you put that together with the idea that addicts require support and, and, and help from their loved ones uh, because they are attached, they are connected, they love each other, 
And that, that really pushes aside the idea of codependency. Because if we have to lean into each other and our communities for strength, rather than figuring out on our own and growing individually, um, th- that way of viewing the world no longer applies. And so in an attachment-based world where our relationships and our connections and the meaning of our uh, love really is what matters most, and then the rest of it will follow, this idea of codependency and doing it on your own, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Before we continue on, we're going to take a short break to tell you about our sponsors. Hey, Love Tribe. I have just a few questions for you. I want to know why you are here listening to the podcast. Are you here because you want to stop bickering with your partner and you want to feel truly heard? Or are you looking for ways to reignite your sex life? Or do you want to feel more emotionally connected with your partner? Or do you just long for those fun, giggly moments of connection that you used to have at the beginning of your relationship? Well, over the last decade of hosting this podcast, those were the main reasons people tuned into the show. And we get it. We've been there. So we created our course, Spark My Relationship, because we wanted to put those tools to unlocking a fulfilling relationship right in your hands. We're offering $100 off our course, Spark My Relationship, which is a self-paced course designed to help you create more passion, improve your communication, and build a stronger, more intimate connection with your partner and have an amazing time doing it. We've collaborated with over 15 therapists and psychologists to bring you the strategies that marriage therapists teach their clients. So to unlock this special offer of our course, our listeners can visit sparkmyrelationship.com slash unlock to get $100 off. That's sparkmyrelationship.com forward slash unlock. We touch on this concept in our episodes frequently. We're better able to show up as our best selves in relationships when our bodies and minds are in a state of harmony. PMS and perimenopause throw a wrench in that whole state of harmony thing. Many women in our community have seen their relationships and their own mental health suffer when PMS and perimenopause symptoms set in. Our sponsor, Happy Mammoth, saw that there was no effective nature-inspired solutions to these issues, so they made one, Estro Control. Relationship Advice listeners can now get 15% off your first order on happymammoth.com with our promo code IDO at checkout. Estro Control is a formula developed by Happy Mammoth, a supplement company dedicated to making women's lives easier. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts that help support hormonal health. The way Estro Control eases PMS is pretty interesting. The ingredients help support the liver, and that's where our hormones get processed, especially estrogen. So when estrogen isn't processed well in our liver, women may start having PMS symptoms, like spots on the skin, cravings, and feeling low all of a sudden. Estro Control was created to help women feel like themselves throughout the whole month. Estro Control is made specifically for women who are premenopausal. It's really great for perimenopause when hormones start to fluctuate and PMS can become especially rough. 
PMS has been a constant challenge throughout my life, from feeling down to sleeplessness to just not feeling comfortable in my own skin. PMS has put me through the ringer time and time again, and I know it's not just me. I've seen my relationship suffer in those times when PMS takes over. Estro Control works to relieve many of those consuming PMS symptoms, helping us regain control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first month at happymammoth.com with the promo code I do at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the promo code I do for 15% off your first order. Before we talk about prodependence and as it relates to addiction, I'd like to talk about it in just a healthy relationship where addiction is not involved and someone may have been classically labeled codependent. And let's say this person is kind of a fixer, like they're with someone who they're trying to fix, you know, that that seems like a, a common meme that I I read about or I'll come across and, and that can certainly be unhealthy. So how do you look at that and, and distinguish it from, let's say, classic codependency? Well, first of all, I think we're meant to lean into each other and we are meant. I, my vulnerabilities can be filled in by your strengths and my strengths can be filled in by your vulnerabilities in a relationship. So I don't have to be the best me I can be. I can be whoever I am and you can help fill in some of the blanks. And that is sort of anathema to codependency. We should be independent people who are our best selves 100% and then together we make 200%. And I look at it more like I'm 75 and you're 75 and sometimes I'm 50 and sometimes, you know, depending on the situations we're in. I think the most important and primary difference that you really have to look at when you consider codependence versus prodependence in a healthy relationship is I lean into you and I'm involved with you because I love you. And that is my soul. You are my connection. You are my heart. You are the person I love, whether you're my child or you're my aunt or you're my partner. And so I could never be with you for the wrong reasons, because I'm always with you for the right reasons, because I love you. And what better reason could there be than the fact that I stick by you and I support you because I love you. And when those dependencies, which are healthy, by the way, we now we've taken in the therapy field everywhere but the addiction world, truly everywhere else. And we value our connections because we understand the power of love, if you will. And I don't mean to be sort of light, but that's true. So if I stay to you, stay with you in day-to-day life, because even though you have problems and I have problems and things are difficult, but I stay not because there's something wrong with me and anyone else should be leaving this relationship because look how challenged you are. If I stay because I love you and I want, and I see the best in you and I hope that together we can do better, then there's nothing wrong with me and nothing wrong with my belief system. What might be wrong is how I love you. So I may rescue, I may enable, I may do things that are problematic for our relationship. I would never say that that has anything to do with the person being bad or broken or codependent. What I would say is, you know, it would be if you came in my office and you had certain kinds of enmeshment and overdependency, which happened, I'd probably say, well, you know, maybe we can find ways for you to love this person more effectively. You know, maybe when you're in this situation, you might do this instead of that, or maybe you might try this. So it's much more pragmatic. I don't have to look at my entire life history and everything that I've been through and what's wrong with me in order to understand why 
I am with you and trying to help you with your problems. To me, pro-dependence says that's obvious. I'm with you because I love you. I'm with you because you're family. You know, there's a huge comparison that I make at the beginning of every version of pro-dependency. And there have actually been three books so far. I don't think there'll be any more for me. But the beginning of the book basically says, you know, if you had cancer and I loved you, and we had two kids and I took three jobs and gained weight and didn't focus on myself because my entire focus of my life was to save you from cancer and rescue my family. And you were lying in bed, not doing much. So I gave up all my re- recreational activities and I became totally focused on you. My neighbors and friends would call me a hero. They would say, God bless you for giving so much of yourself to this person who you never expected this to happen. And the whole family has been victimized by cancer. And you have really stood up and shown up. And let me bring you some casserole, you know, so that you can have a night off and go do something for yourself because you're such a giving, loving person. Understandable. I love that world. But then if my partner and my spouse is, has an opioid addiction and they can't get out of bed because they're so troubled by drugs and they can't seem to get sober. So I go about working three jobs and giving up my recreational activities and gaining weight and being frustrated all the time and all of that stuff. People say to me, you know, what's wrong with you? Why would you stay with that person? What's, why would you, why don't you let them, whatever it is, or why don't you detach? And I just, in fact, there is something wrong with you. We have a name for it. It's called codependency. And this is the problem that you have because you live with a vulnerable person or because you're just giving a lot in your relationship. And I just think, how could it be that caregivers in every other part of our culture are validated and we sing their praises? But in this arena, in the addiction world, if somebody is giving of themselves to help maintain a a family or keep a family together or keep what they had with the hope that it will go forward and be better. How could we possibly blame or label that person? I may not love in the most effective ways, but don't ever attack the fact that I love you. And that really is what codependency does. It undermines the relationship by saying, wow, I'm really broken and I'm giving too much to you and I should focus on me. And, you know, love is nice, but I'm too ill to love in a healthy way. And that has left so many people feeling like, oh, I guess there's something wrong with me for being this with this person. And that must mean there's things wrong with me that I need to explore about myself because I'm inherently broken. Prodependence says, well, I would say, if you are too much of a giver, if you're too much of a caretaker, please come to my house for Christmas because you're going to be the one who's going to make some extra food and you're going to be the one who's want to play games with me. And we're just going to have such a fun time because you give so much. Why is it in every other part of our culture we validate giving as a loving, caring act? But in, uh, and I'm sorry to move to addiction, but in the addiction world, we look at it as illness. And I just have seen too many situations where that has led to divorce, where that has led to someone dying on the street because their family let go of them, um, to, to people being blamed for doing the things that they thought were best. So if you were troubled and I loved you and I did things that weren't particularly helpful for you, in fact, they made your situation worse, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. It just means that the best that I've tried to do to help you wasn't the right method. And I needed to find a different and better way to help you. But it doesn't mean that my desire to help you or my, my, or what underlies my desire to help and be with you is troubled. I think 
So I have taken codependency and flipped it on its head and said, being with troubled people is a strength. Your willingness to help guide that person to healing is an amazing gift to that person. And there is never anything wrong with someone deeply loving and wanting to give to another person. How they do it may be underinformed um, or maybe in, inadequate to solve the problem. But the fact that they give, the fact that they love, the fact that they hang in there, that's codependency. That is saying the, our attachment and our connection is stronger than any of our individual problems. It's such a big idea and such a reframing of codependency and just how we think about it. And it makes a lot of sense. I love the example you gave of the partner with cancer and the partner with addiction. And that's a broader conversation about a person's ability to control, you know, you don't control whether or not you get cancer in, in the same way that people can be predisposed to addiction. And, and that's a bigger thing. Well, let me just comment on that. Mm -hmm. You know, if, and I use words that codependency really doesn't like, like rescue and save and victim, because I think those are true. You know, if cancer comes to my family, I've been victimized. The whole family has been victimized by the illness of cancer. We use a disease model in addiction. We believe in the disease model. I believe there's something wrong with the brain of an addict. They have problems. So why is that any different in terms of my family being victimized by addiction? You know, when we got in a relationship or when I gave birth to you, I wasn't expecting that we would end up in this situation. I also wasn't expecting we would end up with cancer. So why is it that one situation is, is me and the family being victimized by this awful thing, cancer, and that everything I do to try to help you is me being an angel? But if you have an addiction, then um, we, we're not being victimized by it. We're just handling it badly because of our brokenness. And I really, I've worked in too many programs and environments where, and if, may I give an example, Chase? Yes, please. Because I do talk a lot and you know, you're certainly willing to ask questions. Um, but I have developed and created probably six or seven addiction treatment programs in my career. I've written 11 books on the subject. And by the way, that's an addiction in itself, writing all these books. But in any case, one of the things that I've almost consistently found is let's say I go to, I get my wife into a hospital. She's been struggling with alcoholism for years and I finally get her to go into treatment. She's going to be there. She's going to get well. I believe in her and I know I see the best in her. I see the parts in her that she can't even see anymore, but I'm holding on to the hope of the person I knew before the addiction and I have done everything I can, turn myself inside out to get her sober. I haven't been able to, but I did get her to the hospital. And then I go into the family group and I'm feeling really good about all the hard work I've done to try to get, and here they are. And I'm so grateful. And the first thing the uh, lecturer says to me is let's look at your problem. Let's look at what's wrong with you. Let's look at why you gave all this and why you gave up your life and why you put yourself aside. And, you know, that's really an illness. Well, more and more, I've seen families get up and walk out. We have a saying in the therapy field, be where the client is, that the best place to start therapy is really being in their world and working from there. Well, if I have just gotten my partner into treatment after years of misery and worked so hard to keep my family together, what I would expect in that, in that hospital is people to say to me, wow, you're amazing. 
the strength that you showed in this situation is unbelievable. And, you know, I didn't, I know that you didn't go to college studying the addictions. So you wouldn't have ever known the right things to do because, you know, you're, you're a contractor. But with my help, we can take the love that you have and the caring that you have and make it more effective and more useful in this situation. But I can do all that without blaming you, without shaming you, without telling you something wrong with you. And when you do that, people stay and they feel understood and they feel who doesn't want to be validated after they gave up two years of their life to help somebody they love. So, you know, when you go to a cancer support group, right, everybody says, wow, you know, you work so hard and you must be exhausted. And, you know, thank goodness you finally get there. They're doing better or whatever happened to them. You go to an addiction support group for, for spouses and family. It's like, well, let's talk about all the ways you did it wrong. And I just don't think that is fair, nor do I think it's effective. Are there people who have um, embraced the codependency bottle and found their healing and growth there? Absolutely. There wasn't anything else. And people are so desperate to heal themselves and their families, they will take on the pathology. And by the way, Chase, you know, we know that there are stages of grief, right? Bargaining and anger and all that stuff. But one of the ones that was left out, in my opinion, was remorse. You know, if someone I love dies, and sadly, I lost some people to COVID. I think about why well, I wish we'd had this conversation. I wish we'd talked about this. I wish we'd spent more time together. You know, when my dog died, I was like, I wish I'd taken him more for more runs. I wish I'd played with him those times when I was sitting at my desk. Remorse is, is an inherent part of grief. So, um, so when I have lost someone to addiction and they're struggling with addiction, I already feel, as every partner and family member does, could I have done this differently? Could I have lived with them differently that would have saved them from addiction or helped them from addiction? What could I have done to make it different? And codependency says, well, let's talk about what you could have made into a different. You could have done this and this and this. And, you know, I think that's the worst um, ploy to hook people in to what they did wrong because they already feel like they did. And what prodependence would say to them is, you haven't done anything wrong. You're a desire to rescue and to save and to hold on to your family. And this person you love is a gift. Um, so, you know, do people have issues? Sure. Do people's issues, whatever they are from the past, do they, do they get worse when they're in a crisis? Absolutely. We know that babies, you know, they may be toilet trained and never wet their beds at six. But if grandma dies, they might wet their beds again because human beings regressed under stress and stress and loss. So do people in a relationship with a troubled person show parts of themselves that aren't their best, that remind us of things they went through in the past? Sure. But do we then want to say to them, oh, let's look at all the things you did wrong. I, I don't think that's where they are. And I don't think that's a gift to them. In fact, I don't think it's my job to tell somebody that they need to grow or be different. People come to me for addiction treatment, family members, just most people just want things to go back to the way they were. Most people just want things to go okay. The idea of personal growth and development is up to the individual. And if you came to me and said, I want to heal my family's addiction and we got the person sober and helped you do more effective ways of loving them. And then a year later, you came to me and said, you know, some things happened while we were going through that stressful period. And I want to go take a look at them. Great. That's a great time to self-examine. The person's sober. Life is going better. And now you have time, if you want to, to reflect on your challenges. We all have them. But to say that those challenges showed up in the relationship 
where someone was troubled because there's something inherently wrong with you that you have to look at, I think is insulting and borders on abusive. Before we continue on, we're going to take a short break to tell you about our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. What would you tell a client who has a partner who's an addict and and they're trying to help them, how do they make sure that they take care of themselves at the same time? Because that's where, you know, the whole negative connotation of codependency and trying to fix the person that's trying to help the addict, as you've described, comes in. But it is certainly a real thing that if you're trying to help a partner who's an addict, that can just really affect your own mental health. How do you balance that? How do you tell a client to navigate that? Well, there's nothing in pro-dependence that says that you have to stick around for abuse. You know, someone's hitting you, yelling at you. The idea is not that you have to stay no matter what. And also, just like codependency, and this is where the two pieces meet, is that you are exhausting yourself. You are in overwhelming circumstances. You are giving more, not giving too much, but you're giving more than than uh, allows you to be in a good place for yourself. So I see it no differently than if you had cancer and you were, if your husband had cancer, we would make sure that you went out for a night. We would make sure that you, you know, uh, if you're a woman, you got your nails done, you got a massage, you did some good things for yourself. You know, if you're a man that you go out and do whatever it is that makes you feel good out in the world. Um, we are not in pro-dependence. I'm not interested in dismissing people's needs for self-care. I'm just saying that we don't have to say there's something wrong with you to say that, you know, going out in the world and separating is what you need to do. I'm going to say, you know, in situations like this, people really need more support. And I'm amazed that you have dedicated and devoted yourself to the healing of your family. But you also need some time out. And let's see who else we can get involved. In other words, again, when, how can we improve and um, help you find better ways to be in this situation without blaming yourself or saying there's something wrong with you for being there? I'm all for self-care. I'm all for avoiding abuse. But I don't think that that in any way means that um, I have to be seen as part of the problem in order for me to go take better care of myself. Is there such a thing as a, let's say, like savior complex or a fixer who dates people over the years, multiple people, and it, and every person has a life that's kind of falling apart and they're trying to save them? And that can obviously be unhealthy. And how do you talk to maybe a client that that's in that pattern, if that is a thing that, that comes up? Well, so I don't believe in a savior complex. I think that's very codependent. I don't believe in self-sabotage either. I think people do the best that they are the best that they can do. And 
They may not know how to do better, but they are doing the best that they can do. Um, inevitably, I'm going to meet people at a similar level of functioning emotionally, intellectually as myself. You know, I'm going to be involved with people who are a reflection and a mirror of some of my own challenges. Um, codependency would say, boy, you're always, until you grow, you're always going to be connecting with these really troubled people and you need to take a long time out to work on yourself. Well, I, I'd love everyone to work on themselves, but I think more importantly is that I, I already understand that I'm going to be in a relationship with someone who has similar challenges to me. And that's just human nature. But if two broken people come together and try to heal, then together they will grow so much more effectively than individually. Why not find someone who has equal challenges as me and together we can grow? Now, dating people, there are some bottom lines, right? I don't want to date people who are actively using. I don't want to date people who have no life. I don't want to date people who have no insight into themselves and they blame me for everything. I mean, there are bottom lines because certain kinds of people will always make me feel bad about myself. But if I spy somebody who they have issues and we're kind of caught up with each other, but they've been sober a while, they go to therapy. You know, I can't expect, nor should I, to find the person, perfect person. I want to find someone with whom I can grow. And let me tell you this. If you are an emotional two, you are drama personified, but you want to go out with a date of nine, someone has really, really has it together, every two, when they start dating that nine, will say, God, they're really boring every time because it's not exciting. It doesn't have the intensity. It doesn't reflect their experience, you know, in life. And every nine who dates a two, someone who's a nine emotionally will say, I can't go out with that two. There's too much drama. So inevitably, people who are similar emotional places are going to find each other. Do we blame them? Do we shame them? Or do we say, you know, make the right choice, the, the healthiest person you can, or someone who in their adult life has gotten on a road of health, even though you know the two of you are going to have issues and they're going to show up, and then start working on them. Because two troubled people together are going to be stronger in their growth than one person alone. Everything in psychological literature and addiction literature says that when we are deeply connected to other people, we have a greater opportunity to heal. So I believe that applies to emotional challenges, that you and I are going to heal better when we both have the goal of healing and support. Um, I prefer to find troubled people like me because I see that's an opportunity for the two of us to grow together and grow as individuals. I don't need to leave you or walk away from you to grow. I need to accept that together we can grow faster and better. So I don't blame people for their choices. I validate their choices. Again, could you choose more effectively? Could you choose the person who's not an alcoholic? Could you choose the person who is in therapy, even though they're kind of nutty like you? Um, so I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with that. I'm going to say that's human nature. How do we grow from that? How do we make that successful instead of saying there's something wrong with it? So that's how I look at it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And there's, there's so much to dig into here, especially when it comes to addiction. And before we wrap up, I want to make sure I ask you in, in as concise as you can be, obviously it deserves its own 10 hour podcast and you've written books about it, but how can someone who is in a partnership with an addict support that addict's healing? What are some of the big things that they can think about? And then we'll wrap up. Well, I guess the most important thing that I would say to a loved one of an addict, and I will say this over and over again, because is the most important thing is it's not your fault. There is nothing 
look, if you're an active addict and an alcoholic and I make you miserable, I am angry all the time and I, 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 I nag at you all the time and I scream at you and, you know, I'm just the worst person in the world. You can leave me. You can go volunteer somewhere. You can take an extra job to get away from me. But the obvious answer to being miserable and with my partner, my family is not to go drink. You know, that is the decision of the addict. I have choices as an addict. There are other things I can do, but go use. But I love this idea. And I think it's been bad for addicts to say, oh, my spouse is codependent. If they would just be less nagging, less this, less controlling, then I wouldn't drink and use. What an easy excuse for addicts to blame the people they love who already feel remorseful and will already say, what is my part in this? What I say to you loved ones is stand up and understand that, that you can be the worst person in the world, but you don't drive the person's addiction. You may drive them a little nutty, but the choice to use or act out is theirs and theirs alone. And I think that frees the partners up and family members to really, you know, I, I want to say this briefly, when I sit in a book line and people want their book signed, and they buy pro-dependence, I see people buy five. And when I've given that lecture, they cry. I've had people come to me in tears and said, you know, you're the first person who said, I am not responsible for my son's death. You know, and I, I've never, ever had anyone say that to me. I think that that is the right direction. I think that is what moves people to be at peace and to understand that they did the best that they could. Um, and I don't think codependence contributes to that way of looking at the world. Well, Dr. Rob, I think that's a great place to wrap up. You've given myself and our listeners a lot to think about. I think this is a super interesting and important message. So thank you for that. Uh, before we wrap up, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and then we'll say goodbye? Well, you can find me pretty much anywhere online. I have a, a podcast like you do called Sex, Love, and Addiction. We have nearly a million followers, so we've had a lot of folks drop in. Um, you can type my name, Robert Weiss, PhD, and you will find me. Um, you can also write me at uh, rob at seekingintegrity.com. That's those two words put together, seekingintegrity.com. That's the name of our treatment program. And we work with men with intimacy disorders and people who are compulsively sexual, cheating, all of that stuff. And I got to tell you, in that world, there's not a single spouse who can sit back and say, oh, it must be my fault that you cheated and lied and acted out and all of that stuff. No spouse needs to take responsibility for that. And out of that world came this whole concept that that I think is going to make a difference um, in our field. And I'm very grateful for that. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. And we'll have those links in our show notes uh, and on our website, idopodcast.com. And yeah. Well, I just want to drop one more thing. There is a website called prodependence.com uh -huh. and it talks about the books and the concept. Um, I hear that there's also a prodependence.org starting, which is about people who've decided to start 12-step meetings and begin their own journey about being powerless over loving someone and the way you love someone and that there's never anything wrong with the way that you love. So um, love wins. How about that? That's what we always thought anyway. Um, thank you, Chase. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. 
Thank you guys so much for tuning into today's episode. As always, all the links to the guest as well as any of their recommendations will be in the show notes page. You can find the link to that in the episode description or by going to idopodcast.com. Click on the podcast tab up at the top and you will have access to all the episodes that we've ever done. There are over 300 of them. Uh, and while you're on our website, if you haven't checked out our free 14-day happy couple challenge, we really hope you do. It's a free email challenge that we send to you. It's 14 days of fun, easy, doable challenges to help strengthen and improve your relationship. And if you're looking for something that provides a little more help with working on your relationship, whether it's improving intimacy or communication with your partner or just bringing the spark back, we would love for you guys to check out our online course, Spark My Relationship. We're offering $100 off to all of our listeners if you go to sparkmyrelationship.com forward slash unlock. We've worked with over 15 psychologists and therapists to create the real life tools and strategies that they are teaching their clients. So we wanted to give them to you. It's a self-paced online course that can be done in as little as a month or up to three months. You can really decide how much or how little you want to do with your partner or maybe just yourself. So we hope you guys check that out. It's sparkmyrelationship.com forward slash unlock. Have a great day. listening to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com